Visitor, a very special welcome to you. If you're back for the 3,492nd time, a very special welcome to you as well, because it's good to be here together. Let's pray, shall we? I wonder if we can just still our hearts before the Lord and ask God to speak to us for change this morning. As we've heard prophesied and already prayed. Father, we pray this morning that your change will come to our lives right now. We pray that in these next few minutes, the word of God will come to our hearts and change us. Amen. Well, this morning I want to speak to you under this title, An Exciting Spiritual Revolution. An Exciting Spiritual Revolution. How many of us would like to experience one of those? How many people would like to experience an exciting spiritual revolution in their lives? Well, about three quarters of us do. That's good. Well, you can do that right now. If you, come here today, if you came here today and you have no knowledge of who Jesus is, you are not sure what all this talk is about having your sins forgiven, being made a new person, having Jesus as your friend, you can know by the end of this meeting what that really means. And if you're here today and Jesus is already your friend, that you know him, that you've given your life to him, that you know your sins are forgiven, you know that there's a place for you in heaven, you can also have an exciting spiritual revol revolution and live with God on a whole new level. Now this morning, as I was just somewhere in the house it was, I felt God speak to me very clearly with these four words, an exciting spiritual revolution. And I believe God wants us to really get a hold of this for us ourselves this morning. Here's our first passage of scripture coming up on the screen. This comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11. It says this, And he left for Tarsus to, uh, to look for Saul. This is a guy called Barnabas. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now the key to what I'm speaking about this morning, to having an exciting spiritual revolution, is in one word that's in this passage. I wonder if anyone can spot it. Do I have any offers? There is one word in that passage that is the key to everything. Called is a good, good idea. Church is another one. Considerable, look for the... Christian. What word? Okay. Well, okay, I've got the whole passage now. That's very good. It's got to be in there somewhere. Well done. That's, that's good insurance policy. Well, let me tell you right now what the key is to an exciting spiritual revolution. By the way, does anybody want to be a revolutionary? One or two of you do. Come on, where's your revolutionary spirit? Are you just going to sit there at home and let the world go by? Listen, as a teenager, I was a revolutionary. All right? Before I became a Christian, I was still a revolutionary. Did you know that? I was a member of the Young Socialist Party. 
Che Guevara, the beret, the lot. You know, I had the card. I was a card-carrying member. I used to sell the, 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 the socialist worker newspaper at the gates of, of uh, people's houses. I used to do door-to-door work even before I got saved. It was just the wrong door-to-door work. It was very funny many years later going back to the same stores, doors with a different message. So what's happened to you? Listen, we are here not to be ordinary. We are here to be beyond the ordinary. If you said to most people, would you like to sign up for an ordinary life? They'd say, well, that sounds a bit timid, a bit tame, a bit boring. I want something more than ordinary. And you can do. You can sign up for a life that is more than just ordinary. But the kind of life you'll be signing up for is an extraordinary life. It's a revolutionary life. And it's a spiritual life. And you can experience a spiritual revolution in and through your own life if you're willing to sign up for it. I was looking for some kind of revolution even in those days. I knew I had a need in my life. And for all of us here this morning that know we have a need in our lives for something more, this is your day. If you stay tuned for the next few minutes, you will find out how you can access this extraordinary spiritual revolution in your life. And it's all down to one word. And here's the word. Now you can write this down if you want to, but we generally find most people can remember one word. The word is disciple. Disciple. Now you will notice here that at Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now the normal word that's used today is Christian. But let's take a look at the Bible and find out what the word usage was then, because this was a brand new word to describe something else. So what was it describing? Well, here's some words from the Bible. Let's get them out. Saints, that is not some football team down south. That is a a word used to describe those who truly follow Jesus. Here's another one. Believers. So the next one. Disciples. And finally, Christians. Well, how many times do you think the New Testament uses these words? Let's start with the first one. Saints. Anybody want to guess? 76 times? 100. Well, it's a bit less than that. Let's see. It's 59. Believers. Well, that's got to be a good one. How many times is the word believers actually used in the New Testament? Any guesses? Sorry? 80? 36? 100? It's three. Now listen to this, because this is important. You see, so much of what the Western world is about is about what's in our heads, what we think and what we believe. And so much Christian argument in the West goes on between one group of church people who believe this and the other group that believe something different. And you know how that works out. One night there's this policeman and he's walking over London Bridge. And he sees a guy standing on the bridge about to jump into the river. And he says, stop, don't do it. And the guy says, well, he says, why shouldn't I do it? He said, because Jesus loves you and I'm a Christian policeman. He said, well, I'm a a believer too. He said, you are? Well, you shouldn't be doing this. 
He said, what do you believe in? He said, I believe in Jesus and the cross. He said, so do I. He said, I believe Jesus is coming back again. So do I. He said, I believe the Bible is inspired word of God. He said, so do I. Do you believe Jesus is coming back before the rapture or after the rapture? He said, I believe Jesus is coming back um, bef- um, after the rapture. He said, well, I believe Jesus is coming back before the rapture. And he pushed him in the river. <laughs> See, that's what Christians have become like. They become transfixed on what they believe. But that word's only used three times to describe us in the New Testament. And so much of our preaching today is about preaching to our beliefs. It's about preaching to give us more information. It's about preaching so we can be somehow enriched by more knowledge in our heads and in our hearts of the Word of God. And in itself, that's not a bad thing. But if that's all we've got, we haven't got enough. Let's look at the word disciple here. How many times is that used? 261. You were very near this voice in my... He was, try, he was trying to count it on his iPhone on the internet now. I, I can tell that was too near a guess to, to be any better. And Christians, now that's the word we all use today. That's used three times. You know it's used not very much. So at Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. By the way, that word doesn't mean what you think it means. There's a lot of argument about where the word Christian comes from. And it's, it's, oh, we can't, it's, it probably means the goody-goody group. It was probably a nickname given to them by the people who had no Jewish background, so the word Christ would mean nothing to them. So they wouldn't call them christ Ianoi because they wouldn't understand that, that, that understanding of, of the Jewish background to Christ. The nearest word they had was Krestos. And Krestos means someone with good morals, someone who's upstanding. So they, they, they probably use that word for them to make fun of them. Ha! Look at those goody goodies over there. That's what it means. Now, at the time, it was probably an insult or meant to make fun of them. Later, they probably said something along the lines of, no, we're not goody goodies. We follow Christ, and he's the only one who's truly good. But he works his work in us in order for our lives to change. So they change it from Christianoi to Christianoi, and where we get the word Christian from. But originally it was a term to laugh at Christians and make fun of their morals, which were good morals. Now, if it really is all about the word disciple, what does that mean? Because the word disciple was already in use in the New Testament when Jesus came along. And everybody knew what a disciple was. Now let me give you a little bit of Greek here from the New Testament. There are two words. One of them is the word for disciple, and it's the word mathetes. And a mathetes was a student or a pupil or a learner or a follower. But you couldn't have a mathetes on your own, on their own. You had to have the other part of that deal, which was someone called a didaskoloi or didaskolos. And a didaskalos is a teacher. So you have a didaskalos and a mathetes. Or a didaskalos and many mathetes. So, in those days, everything worked by a disciple and teacher process. Let's say you wanted to train to become a doctor. You found a good doctor. And he was your teacher. And you were his mathetes. And he would teach you the theory of medicine 
and the practice of medicine. So that one day you could be a practicing doctor yourself, just like he was. And in fact, if you got good one day, you were expected to gather your own group of Mathertoi around you, and you would do the same to them. That's what a Mathertes was. That's what a disciple was. It was someone who learnt the theory and the practice of a trade from someone, a philosopher, a teacher, a doctor, a tradesman, maybe a goldsmith or a stonemason, something like that. You would be with them and learn the trade from them by working alongside them. Now, in the Jewish tradition, you became what's called a Talmud. And it, you were a Talmud student of the Torah, of the law of Moses. And you would find yourself a rabbi. Heard that word before? This is the Jewish equivalent of didaskalos and mathetes. You would have a rabbi who was the teacher, and you would have a student who was called a Talmud. And you would go along with that rabbi, and you'd be with that rabbi as much as you possibly could, and you'd learn everything he could about the scriptures, not just what you get in your head, but how to outwork those scriptures, and how to turn those into practical, everyday living. That was the pattern in the Bible. And in both these models, Jewish and Gentile, you would eventually become a teacher in your own right. You would no longer be just a disciple, you would also be a didaskalon, a teacher. And you would teach that to somebody else. And it says that it was at Antioch, these people who followed this pattern were first called Christians. Maybe as a bit of a dig at them and their goody-goodiness. So to truly follow Christ is emphasized by this word, mathetes, disciple, not believer. To be a Christian in a true Acts 11 sense of the word we need more than just some theology or beliefs in our head. We need to be disciples who practice the teaching that we've received. And if we're not practicing it, then we're missing out. We're not completing the process. And Jesus refers to this process. You'll see it here on the board in Luke 6.40 on the screens. It says, a pupil, now in the Greek that's the word mathetes, a disciple, is not above his teacher. But everyone after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's what we are called to, to be like our rabbi, Jesus. And that's the process. Now, I want to say something to you to try and help you here. And it's about success. We believe in success. Please come in if you want to and take a seat. There's plenty. I don't mind you come forward. Nice to see you. Welcome. Can the stewards help these guys in from outside, please, and bring them in? Now, please hear me when I say this now. If you want to be successful as a disciple of Jesus, it is not about a place you get to. It is not about saying, oh, when I get to this level of Bible knowledge, or when I get to 
this level of maturity, or when I get to this amount of daily prayer and Bible reading, or when I led so many souls to Christ, then I'll be successful. That is not how the Christian life works. That is not how God works in each one of our lives. Steve, I wonder if I can borrow you. Paul and Andy are sitting on the front row. Maybe you can borrow me. Steve, I'd like you to stand facing Sally, just about there. That's it. Andy, I'd like you to stand sort of middle here, and Paul would like to stand down there. Now imagine these three guys, face, face, just face behind the seat. Imagine these three guys are walking Jesus' road here. This is the way. And Steve is the most spiritually mature. He's really got somewhere. I mean, he is, you know, the Bishop of Bishops, almost the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, he's sort of catching up there with Mother Teresa and a few others, all right? So Steve is doing, but you can see the halo now around his head. And Andy, well, he's, he's doing moderately fairly well. I mean, he's a leader in a house church cell, you know, so he's doing pretty well. Now, Paul here, Paul here, he got saved yesterday. And he's come from a terrible past, but God has touched his life, and he feels truly born again inside. Now, here are all these guys walking on the road. Now, which one of them is the most successful? Pardon? All of them, because they're all walking on the road. It doesn't matter where you are. So let's say Paul witnesses to his friend Robin, who's a good guy. He hasn't come from a bad background. Paul, come and get your friend Robin here. And Robin already has a background. and so He leads him to Christ straight away. And Robin is, is sort of halfway between Paul and, and Andy when he starts off. Come and stand up here. He, he knows more of his Bible. He's got his life together more. His money isn't in a mess. His marriage is doing well and all the rest of it. And sorry about the marriage bit there, Robbie. I haven't quite got there, but maybe that's a prophecy. Okay. So you see, he's in success. Now, Paul is still in success. Now, imagine one day, our Archbishop Steve here, he just feels like being a bit comfortable. So he says, you know, I'm, I'm just going to take a rest. And he leaves the way and he sits down here. Who's the most successful now? All of these three. Who's the least successful? But he's got further. Now suppose Steve has a revelation that the Archangel Gabriel appears in his bedroom. Steve, stop resting on your laurels. Get back in the way. He says, oh, I'm sorry, Lord. And he repents in that moment. Immediately, he enters into success. And he is now as successful as he was before. Can you see how this works? If you've fallen away and you're out of God's way, got tired of doing what you're doing, the minute you step back in, you're in success. It doesn't matter where you are on the road. Even if you feel you slip back a few notches, just to be on the road is success itself. And it's really important to understand that when we're seeking to make our response with God. Success is a path, not a place. Can you remember that? And what happens is, when you step back in here, Goodness of God from above just fills your heart with a fresh sense of love and forgiveness and acceptance all over again. And you feel, oh God, you're so good to me. Thank you for washing me clean right now. I feel your blood's justifying me, Jesus. I'm back in success. I know I've missed it for so long, but thank you. Thank you now. I feel like I've never left the way. That's what justified means. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't sort of demote you. He doesn't say, well, when you get on the way and catch Steve up, then you'll, you can feel better again. Now, our hearts don't let us believe that. Our hearts 
want to say, well, this is how I'll come back on the way. I'll sort of stand in the way here, and then I'll feel terrible for the next three months. And then eventually, when I caught Robin up, because he's not doing too badly, then I'll feel better again. That's, that's, that's not how it is. The moment you step into that way, you're in success. You can hear God's word in the most incredible way. We, we know uh, a family that the mum was healed after 14 years in a wheelchair by somebody who'd been walking that way for six weeks. She was in a church full of people. The pastor was there, and she went and laid hands on this lady, and the lady got out of the wheelchair. After six weeks, well, what can you do in six weeks to be like the Apostle Paul? I mean, not much, can you? Can you see she stepped into success straight away the day she got saved? And she had the faith, and she had the, the temerity, she had the audacity to actually go and pray for somebody. Now, we wouldn't do that. We were all sensible, or would be sensible. But she did it, and by the grace of God, the woman got out of a wheelchair. See, it's not about our efforts. It's about the goodness of God putting us back in line and saying, okay, now you've committed to me. Now you've repented. You're in success. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never asked Jesus into your life, the moment you do, you step onto that way and you're as successful as anybody else. You might feel, well, I'm right back here at the beginning, but it doesn't matter. This is success, that's success. You're all in the same success. Amen? Okay, guys, thank you. You can sit back down. Now, I want to say something more about discipleship and disciples. Take a look at these scriptures now. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah, still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Let's look at the next scripture as well. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables, saying, and then a bit further on, on the next screen, the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. There were two kinds of people who followed Jesus. That's my first point. Two groups. The crowds and the disciples. Now, they all went to the same meetings. They all went to the same big meetings. They all heard the same big teaching. They all experienced miracles. Many of them... On both, in both those groups were healed. And they saw their mums and dads get touched and healed. They experienced tremendous things together. But something different happened to make one lot disciples and the other lot crowd. And here's what it is. When the meeting was over, the crowds went home. I said, boy, wasn't that a good meeting? I really enjoyed that. I mean, did you see, did you see our next door neighbor but one get healed there? Man, he's never walked properly in that leg in years, and now he's walking brilliantly. He'll like, earn money properly again. Isn't that good for him? That's how the crowds went home. But the disciples did not go home at that point. They went and found Jesus, and they went home with him. If he was staying in somebody's house, 
They all crowded in the house with him. And they said, Jesus, you know that bit of teaching you were giving about the, the sower and the soils? Well, we didn't get it. Neither did the crowd, because I heard them talking. And the crowd all went home and said, well, that was interesting, that sower and soils bit, wasn't it? Wasn't that a good message? Yeah, really good sermon. What was it about? Well, I can't quite remember now, but it was a good message anyway. The disciples said, Jesus, tell us what it means. You see, the disciples are with Jesus in the small group as well as in the big group. That's why we have cells in our church, small group meetings. Because Jesus promises to be amongst two or three people. And there is where the teaching is unpacked and explained. Now, what you read there was when Jesus said to them in one of these small groups, who do people say I am? Well, they've got all kinds of wild theories and ideas out there, Jesus. And the, the disciples got their ears open. They're on Facebook, so they know what people are saying. And they relay that back to Jesus, who probably wasn't on Facebook, because he's like me, he's sensible. But um, <laughs> anyway, he says, who do you say I am? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit moved on Peter, not one of these great miracle meetings on the mountain, but on a tiny little meeting with just a few of them, and said, this guy you're speaking to is none other than the Son of God himself. Peter had his most powerful revelation, not with the feeding of the 5,000, nor with the multitude healed from Syria, or with the many that were brought to Jesus, or with the walking on the water. He had it in a small group meeting with Jesus there. That's the power of cells. And you can see that discipleship and being with Jesus in the small group go hand in hand together. And that's why we want to keep promoting ourselves to you all. Because the cells, the small groups really matter. It's not something you would say of Jesus, well, Jesus, I'll come this Thursday because I'm not busy, but next Thursday I'm playing tennis, and the Thursday after, uh, you know, I'm going out for the evening, and maybe I'll come the week after that. This is not an occasional drop-in to be really... Uh, benefiting from the cell and be a true disciple, you'll make that your number one priority of the week. And do you know what? I have done this. Even before we came to Newcastle, I believed in the cell, the small group. And I can remember driving 100 miles home someday to get home in time just to be at the cell. That's how important it was to me. And it should be that important to all of us that nothing stops us being in the small group with Jesus because that's where discipleship really occurs because there are things you can say and things you can do in a small group that you can't do in a big group and Jesus did it should be our number one priority meeting of the week I know it is for me and I know it is for many of you but I want to encourage every one of us if you want to live an exciting revolutionary spiritual lifestyle it will come from our hearts being hearts of disciples and being with other disciples like that in the small group in the week as well as in the big meeting. There's a place for both, but they're both really essential. Okay, so there were two groups of people, the crowds who went home, even though they'd seen great things. They heard the teaching, but it didn't really change them at all. And the disciples who went home with Jesus, and got further insight. And then after that, their whole focus was to put those words of Jesus into practice. So let's look at the next passage of Scripture that's coming up. 
This is under my heading of two motivations. We've had two groups, so two motivations. Now look at this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, notice that word there for teacher. This is the pattern, Rabbi and disciple, Rabbi and Talmud. Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we, we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now the crowds are attracted to Jesus' ministry. And they've just had an incredible experience. They've been fed, 5,000 of them. And then they chase Jesus around the lake. If you've been there, it's not a big lake. So you can do this. And when they get to the other side, they said, Jesus, we want more. And he said, more of what? You've only chased me because you had a free supper. I gave you a free Big Mac, fish style, and now you want more. You see, Jesus could tell what their motivation really was. The crowd had come for the sake of information. They'd come because they were expecting something. They came because they wanted to gain. Can I tell you something? Our world has the wrong attitude to life and God and everything else. And it's all summed up in one word, expectation. I watched the Prime Minister on the TV the other day, and I watched people tell him off about the floods. Now, I agree our Prime Minister's powerful, but I don't expect him to hold back the weather, do you? I mean, I think that's God's department. If you want the weather changed, get on your knees and pray, but don't blame the Prime Minister. You can blame the Prime Minister for plenty of things, but surely not the fact you flooded. Well, they're complaining they didn't get enough drainage and enough walls and enough flood defences, and there may be something in that. But you see, there is this expectation about in the world today that the government should do something. Where are they when I need them? That is a bad attitude. It is not Christ's attitude. That isn't the way the New Testament works. And if we're going to be disciples and be different, we've got to get rid of that attitude of expectation in us. Here it is, and Jesus challenges it. You come expecting something. You're expecting a free handout. You're expecting a free lunch from me because you had one yesterday. That's not what I'm about, guys. That is the crowd's motivation. And that's not what we're about as Christians at all. We need to watch out for that one and change if it's in us. Because we should be like this. We should be like the disciples. The disciples were there to listen to Jesus because they wanted not information, they wanted help to put things into practice. They were there to dedicate their lives to God, not expect something from God. They were there to give and not to gain. So that's two motivations. And finally, two outcomes. Let's look at the next scripture. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Now, 
what's going on here? Jesus is teaching at the end of a big block of teaching. And he's saying, here's how it is to live like a disciple with me. This is the kind of heart attitude and life practice I expect from you. And then right at the end, he says, this is how to enter into it. And he gives this passage. And you'll know the story very well. He starts the beginning of the passage by saying, why do you call me? Now, the Greek there is what we call a present continuous. It should read like this. Why do you keep on calling me, Lord, Lord? It's a lifestyle. Say, Lord, Lord. But then you don't do what I say. Now, I've had many arguments and discussions with people over the years, particularly during my more theological years, if you like, about whether the Bible has any errors in it. Can you really trust the Bible, or are there contradictions in the Bible? Well, I found one. And that kind of gave me a problem. There is one contradiction in the Bible. And it's when Peter says to Jesus, no, Lord. You see, you can't have Jesus as your Lord and then say no to him. That is a contradiction. That's the only one I can properly find in the Bible. And yet many of those in the crowd who are following Jesus, Jesus challenges them and says, listen, you call me your teacher, your Lord. And you go on calling me that, but you don't do what I say. Therefore, I can't be your Lord. There's an old saying, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And here is the key to being a disciple. It's the number one defining characteristic. And it marks that person out from the rest of the world. And it marks them out from the crowd. And it's this. The disciple actually does the teaching. The crowd listen to it as information and say that's nice. There was a guy some years ago, he wrote a physical fitness plan. And he was really keen on this stuff. He was like a, a guru of his own sort of fitness stuff. And he's like most of these people that write diets and fitness plans. He was very passionate about it. Everywhere he went, he spoke about it. And he would go around different countries giving a talk to introduce his book and his fitness plan. And afterwards, people would come up to him and they'd come and shake his hand. And they would say, hey, I've read the book, it's really good. And he realized after a while something was missing. These people were the most unfit people he'd ever seen in his life. And they were coming up to him saying, I've read the book. And in the end, he got so fed up with this. He said, I don't want you to read the book. I want you to do the program and get fit. That's the whole idea. Good book. Really interesting. In fact, I've read it twice now just to make sure it was as you know, extreme as it thought it was the first time. So do you know what he did? In the end, he offered a gift of tens of thousands of pounds uh, to somebody who could do the book to a certain level, the first one that could do the book and get to him at this certain fitness level. He was tired of people reading the book but not doing the program. I didn't write the book for you to read it and say, isn't that nice? I wrote the book so you could do the program. And he called it the abyss. He said there's this big gulf between those on the one side who read it and those on the other side who actually do it. 
The crowds will read the book, but the disciples will not only read the book, they'll cross that abyss and they'll actually put it into practice. And that's what makes the difference. We could sum that up in a single word. The word is this, obedience. Now that's a really popular word today, isn't it? Who wants to be obedient? I mean, it's gone, sort of gone out of fashion a bit, isn't it? We discuss things. We negotiate things. But nobody's obedient anymore. Well, I know, officer, it's a 30-mile-an-hour traffic sign, but that's for everybody else. See, I had a good reason for going a bit faster because you know, I've got this meeting to get to or something like that. See, the idea of obedience has kind of gone on holiday, I think, from our society. Obedience makes you feel put upon or something like that. But Jesus doesn't see it like that. Can we see our next scripture? This is what he tells us. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see, what we've done in the church is we've taught people everything Jesus has commanded us. But here's the difference. Have we taught them to obey everything Jesus commands us? See, most, m- most times it's, it's easy to read that, teaching them, to, teaching them everything I have commanded you. Okay, love one another as I have loved you. But that's very different from teaching somebody actually to obey it. And that's what marks out a disciple. Someone who is willing to obey. Now, let me give you a horrible challenge here right now. If you don't like obeying, please don't want to go to heaven. Because when you're in heaven, guess what? God will say, Bill, would you go and do this job for me? No, Lord, don't want to. It's not going to be like that in heaven, is it? Bill, would you go and help those angels tune up their harps a bit more? They're a bit out of tune there. Sure, Lord, I'll go, I'll go get them into shape for you. Steve, would you go visit that group of people over there and tell them the meeting starts half an hour earlier tonight and we're all going to worship around the throne? Sure, Lord, I'll do that for you. See, in heaven, God will be speaking to us and he will tell us to do things. Now, if we don't like obedience now, what makes us think we'll like it in heaven? But here is where my title comes in. If we can be true disciples who read the Word of God and believe that every time we're reading it, we're not just reading it for information, we're reading it to obey it, that will start in you the most incredible spiritual chain reaction that will lead to the most exciting spiritual revolution you have ever experienced in your days. Simply obeying the Word of God. Can I put in one warning here? That's not a charter for weirdo, weirdo stuff. There are some folk who pick up the Bible and say, well, it says in the Bible, I'm going to do it. And they go around like this. They've got one hand and one eye. And they sort of, well, I'm just doing what Jesus said. Do you understand what I mean here? If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it off. You have to do this with understanding. We do this together, not individualistically. If the disciples were in a boat, and they're out on the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and um, Peter says... Hey guys, I've had a revelation from God. I'm going to be a carpenter like Jesus, not a fisherman. So he gets a drill and he starts drilling a hole in the bottom of the boat. Well, I'm just practicing my drilling skills here. 
I think the rest of us will have something to say about that, don't you? You may want to be a carpenter like Jesus, but you're not doing it like that right now. Okay, so when we're talking about obeying the word of God, we're talking about an accountable group accountability thing together as well. We don't just go off and individually do weird, strange things. And I've seen people do some weird, strange things over the year because they felt God said it to them in his word. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a proper, orthodox, faithful, reliable, attested and tested and approved of obedience day by day to the word of God. Now, sure, there are plenty of things you can get from yourself. Don't steal. Well, I think you can work that one out fairly easily. Don't speed. Does he say that in the Bible somewhere? It ought to, didn't it, for the rest of us who've been caught doing that in the last few years. But there's some guilty laughs going on here. Perhaps I've hit a raw nerve here. Okay. It is revolutionary to pick up the Bible, open it, read it, and think, God, I'm going to do this. If it says I should give 10% of my income, I'm going to start. And when I do, the most incredible blessing is going to come on my life. It is revolutionary to pick up the Bible and think, hey, I'm not going to have a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm going to find somebody who serves God with me together and we can build that kind of world together. It's revolutionary to pick up the Bible and think, hey, I'm not going to have my thinking like the thinking pattern of this world. I'm going to let my thinking be like God's thinking and be different to the people around me. I'm going to look at things differently. I'm going to talk about things differently. I'm going to approach them differently. It will begin the most incredible spiritual revolution in our lives. Our times of prayer will come alive. Our times of Bible reading will become Times we can't wait to get to because as we read that word, we'll think, wow, there's something here I can obey. I can actually do what God is telling me from this scripture. And as I do it, the nearness of God will come to me and be my strength. The nearness of God will start to make itself uh, more real in my spirit inside. I'll know God's closeness. When I come to the meetings, I'll already be excited because I've met this God hour by hour during my week, minute by minute. I'm so excited with him. And when we do what his word says, it works. It actually starts to transform our lives. It actually starts to bring healing to us and, and, and release from our burdens and our worries. It actually starts to bring a transformation in our lives. It begins the most incredible spiritual revolution in us. And it all comes from these two words, disciple and obedience. I promise you, it works. If you want to start a revolution right now, then commit to being a disciple and commit to obeying God at his word whenever his word comes to you. And you will see your life transformed. You'll see your experience of God transformed and you'll see the lives of others around you transformed. It all comes down to those two words. And that's what Jesus told them here. He said, you've got to teach these guys, not what I taught you, but to obey what I taught you. So you need to teach them first, then this is how we do it. This is how we carry that out. And if you do that, then you're free to go to all nations with that message and with that mission. So here's the choice. We've had two groups of people, two motivations, and two outcomes. 
Crowds or disciples? Crowds or disciples? I want to be with the revolutionists. That's with the disciples. Anybody else want to be a revolutionary this morning? Good, there's some hands up. Well, if you want to be a revolutionary, stand up. We'll pray. Now, please don't pray this unless you mean it, because this is like a blue touch paper. This is like putting the light to an explosive barrel of gunpowder. So I'm warning you now. Please repeat after me. Lord Jesus, right now, I come to you and I commit to being a disciple. I commit to reading your word and obeying it. In, in your precious name, Lord. Amen. Thank you.